Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst for Sports Info Solutions. Both this podcast is to both inform and entertain. Baseball analytics are cool, interesting, and fun. Our company develops them and provides them to MLB teams, media, and fantasy baseball athletes. We'll give you a peek into our world, talk to important people around the industry about analytics storylines, and share what we thought to be cool, interesting, and fun. On today's show, we'll be joined by Ben Gentleman from Major League Baseball to talk about career advice for those who love to work with baseball stats. He'll also share just how stats are created. My colleague Andrew Kine and I will talk leaderboards and some recent work we've done. And as always, we'll close with the ridiculous numbers of the day. We start the show with our opening monologue, which we'll call... Batter Up! Hamilton Simmons is the next shortstop in the line of all-time greats, alongside players like Ozzie Smith and Omar Vizquel. As long as Simmons is on the field, he'll be considered the best in the game. But what if there's someone right now who could be better than him? Can you accept that possibility? Probably not, right? Let's talk about Diamondback shortstop Nick Ahmed. We'll shine our statistical spotlight on him. Ahmed tied Simmons for the major league lead in defensive runs saved among shortstops last season. He won the NL Gold Glove and was the runner-up for the Fielding Bible Award at that position. Where Ahmed wins is on the ball, hitting the shortstop third base hole. Ahmed's arm is to shortstop, but Matt Chapman's arm is to third base. Awesome. Ahmed was a college pitcher who could throw 95 miles an hour. He throws the ball hard, and he throws it on target. We compile an accuracy rating for infielder throws. Since the start of last season, Ahmed's rating is 97% right at the top of the shortstop leaderboard. This season, Ahmed has six defensive runs saved. He hasn't made a lot of great plays, but he's been his usual reliable self. He's gotten to balls in all directions, he's turned double plays, and he's avoided mistakes. The Diamondbacks were supposed to take a step back this season, but so far they're hanging in in the NL West. Ahmed has come up strong with his glove and his bat. As for Simmons, he has zero defensive runs saved this season, nothing to write home about, but that sort of thing happens. A player can ratchet up his season numbers quickly. The question is, when Simmons does, will he be neck and neck with Ahmed again? Or will Ahmed have run away from the pack? This is something under the radar to watch as you watch the 2019 season play out. Ben Jedlovic is the Director of Engineering and Data Quality for MLB, working directly with things like Stabcast. He's the former president of Baseball Info Solutions. Ben started his career there as the inaugural member of the research and development team. He's a graduate of Rice University. We're going to talk to him about his career and how a stat goes from birth to public use. Ben, welcome. I want to talk to you about what you do now. What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, Mark, thanks for having me. First of all, it's, uh, it's an honor and privilege to be back at BIS and talking with you. Um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, my job kind of involves, I think we'll break into three areas. You know, first and foremost is club support, answering questions from clubs and uh, addressing issues that they might have with any of the services, the data or the video that we provide from Major League Baseball. Um, the second is where we've been able to make a lot of progress in terms of just data quality and process improvement as much as anything else. So uh, when we had an issue, let's say a pitch didn't track the previous night or a couple of, maybe two or three pitches didn't track in a particular game uh, with the StatCast system, we dig into why that was. Was it a radar interference issue? Was it some sort of you know, other operator error? And let's make sure that we can address it uh, at the root cause, at the root source of the problem. And 
make sure that uh, that we can correct it for going, you know, going forward to make sure we have a, a mentality of continuous improvement across the organization, across the baseball data operation. Um, and then finally, an element where we started to get into more is the data strategy component. So, you know, we have all this wonderful data. How can we best you know, make it available to clubs and bring it to fans? And what, are the thing, what things can we do to uh, kind of enrich the game that much further, make it more enjoyable? So that's something that's uh, kind of in the back of our mind an ongoing effort. What's in it? That's a lot of behind the scenes type stuff. What's an example of something that's more front facing that uh, you've worked on that you're particularly uh, proud of? Uh, you know, it is a lot of behind the scenes stuff for sure. Um, the one example uh, would be we're working on using some LIDAR scans to project home run distances uh, and, and to get more accurate placements so we can pinpoint exactly where a ball lands within millimeters, frankly. And, uh, and then identifying that landing point and retracing its trajectory and coming up with better uh, home run distances uh, is something that we're pretty excited about. There's obviously a lot of focus, focus on that particular uh, data point and, uh, and it's something we want to make sure we have right. Are, are you the person that people complain to when someone says, oh, it, was, it had to be a 500 foot home run and it only comes out at 450? Uh, a handful of people feel those complaints, but uh, okay. I think people have, uh, have found that I was receptive to hearing those complaints and trying to do something. All right, Ben and I know each other going a, a good ways back to uh, when I was at ESPN, when Ben was first starting out here. What's the best lesson that you could share with someone who wanted to take a career path in baseball statistics? You've worked from the bottom all the way up to the top now. Sure, so, you know, there's a lot of different lessons. I've, I've been fortunate to, uh, to have some success in this industry and to move along quite well. And I've had a lot of opportunities to talk with people who are who are trying to follow in those footsteps and trying to uh, trying to get into the industry and and to be honest, you know, a lot of the advice that I've given over the years uh, has changed. You know, I, I used to, and I think these are all still good ideas. You know, make sure that you can develop uh, your technical skills as much as possible, develop your analytical skills. Um, you know, get a strong fundamental mathematics and statistics background. Make sure you know how to communicate effectively. All of these things are still true, but you know, one of the things that that is. Uh, that, that remains a prominent way to set yourself apart and try to get into this industry is to do your own analysis and to publish it. You know, even if you just set up your own free WordPress blog, uh, make sure that you uh, are doing your own, you're formulating your own analysis, you're creating your own ideas, and uh, you're, you're practicing the, just the, um, the process of preparing the information and, and communicating it to an audience. Even if nobody reads the blog, you drop the, the link to the blog at the bottom of your uh, at the bottom of your resume, and you know, sometimes you'll, you'll get lucky enough to have somebody click that link and, and like what they see, and they'll follow up with you. What's the second best tip that you got? <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I I tell people the story about when I was in Houston. I uh, at school at Rice University. I, you know, the Astros at the time weren't a very analytically oriented organization, but uh, it, it just so happened that the Houston Rockets and the NBA became a very analytically minded organization as I while I was in school. And Daryl Morey came in and kind of brought the first analytics front office together uh, with Sam Inkey in Houston. And uh, I wasn't especially interested in working in basketball long term. I, I was more of a baseball guy, I always have been. And, uh, but I took advantage of the opportunity to get to know those guys a little bit, do some work on the side for free for them. Um, and you know, not knowing exactly how that would play out or if it would, if it would uh, benefit me in any way in the future. Um, but I did that and I kept in kind of loose contact with them. They were obviously big important guys and, and had a lot going on. But uh, uh, when I applied for the job at BIS, actually, a couple years later, 
Um, I was doing some research on the job I had applied for, and I learned that Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, had gotten his very first job in sports from none other than John Dewan, the owner of the BIS. And so I shot Daryl an email and said, hey, do you mind putting in a good word for me? Like, let him know that, you know, I, I can do some work and, and you know me a little bit. And, and uh, well, I did get the job. I don't know. I, I, I like to think that I earned it on my own, but that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So you never know. Like, you know, I got to know Daryl by doing some free work for him, even though it wasn't in the field that I that I really wanted to work. Uh, I went to his conference, the MIT Sloan Sports Conference. I networked with him and, and with many others back in the very first year of that conference. Um, and so networking is the bottom line. Is you know, it, it, people like to say it's not you know what you know, but who you know, and it's true. Uh, even in an industry that's grown as much as this, it's uh, that can really come in. So networking, being willing to do something that maybe isn't necessarily the area that you want to do, and then get your work out there. Those Absolutely. are the keys to uh, to success when you're and get lucky. But yes. right, and lucky, <laughs> but you make your own luck by doing those things. Right. All right. So we had someone that just came over to our uh, office, and I wanted so badly to say this to him because we used to joke about this at ESPN. Uh, this is where the stats are made. This room, where the research and development team works. You insert a number here, you plug in something there, and out, poof, out of the microwave comes the statistic. You're someone who has been involved in the birthing and creating of baseball statistics. So I want you to take us through the process of one, taking, some, taking us through something where you're starting when the idea was first hatched to now where it's publicly used. Sure, well, a great example of that is maybe an obvious one is defensive runs here. So. Uh, John Dewan had, had developed the plus-minus system with the original fielding Bible back in 2005, I believe it was, and uh, he knew that he, you know, he had developed a kind of a plays saved and even bases saved model for the plus-minus system to tell you how many better, how many plays uh, a particular defender or fielder was better or worse than average at that position in a given year, and he knew he wanted to take it to the next step and convert it to the currency of baseball runs. Um, you know, you ultimately want to know uh, how many how many runs you, know, you save for the team. Uh, yeah, it's equivalent to putting a, a run on the board as a, as a hitter or, or taking one away as a pitcher. Um, and so we knew this was, a, John knew this was something he wanted to address and he brought me on board um, in December 2008 as, and formed the R&D department uh, with a couple of other hires shortly thereafter. And uh, we knew immediately that for the Fielding Bible Volume 2, which was due to the printers uh, just 45 days later, uh, that we needed to take this play save system and convert a whole defensive run save system out of it with many different components and, and whatnot. So that was uh, that was an, uh, an interesting time for everything to come together. You did it quick. You yes. didn't do it slow. Nowadays it's done pretty slow, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it probably wasn't ideal in a lot of sense. You know, I had, you know, we had three new employees working on a brand new statistic that we were going to publish in a book to see and then we we're going to go out and market it to clubs and and to to you at espn at the time and, and a number of other uh, partners that we wanted to work with and we were working with um and so that was a uh you know really a challenge but also a great opportunity for me um being 21 years old being thrown right into the thick of it and writing code that was going to go into production and, and doing you know really groundbreaking work and at the time it was a much smaller industry there hadn't been a lot of uh, development uh, you know, this was all new, uh, cutting-edge information. Nobody had ever done it before. I think we were kind of developing in parallel with UZR at about the same time with what Mitchell was doing with UZR. Um, but it was it was uh, it was a fun time. How much thought goes into naming this stat and making sure that the public can easily understand it? Uh, a, a lot. Um, 
it's it's a tough tough balance, right? Because you want a statistic to be something intuitive and something that the people can see as factual and they can understand it and they can use it. Uh, and so something like defensive run saved, which is exactly how it sounds, right? You, you immediately you hear defensive run saved, and you can even if you don't know anything about the stat, you can piece it together at least what it's trying to go for, right? The, the big picture and how you might be able to use it. Um, you know, you see, by comparison, you know, not nothing against uh, UZR or anything, but because it's a Mitchell's done fantastic work with the stat, but you hear UZR and you're like, okay, I have no idea what that is, you're right off the bat. Um, and there's there's pros and cons to that, right? When, when you're saying defensive run save, you know, you're trying to pass it off as, you know, intuitive, but but it also comes across a little bit stronger than, than uh, sometimes people would like. So you, know, you and I, Mark, have talked about many times just having people's first impression be, Okay, well, let me see where in the game did he save that run? It was this guy who didn't score as a result. And it doesn't quite work like that, right? It's, it's more of incremental runs and fractional pieces of runs that add up. Uh, and so, so sometimes it goes, sometimes being a little bit more specific or sometimes branding it as a particular breed of stat makes it clear it's an estimation uh, and not a fact, not something that you can pinpoint. This is the, the run that was saved in the game. Ten, ten years later, how, how satisfied are you with that? Uh, I'm never satisfied with anything. Um, it's, you know, I think by when the day we sent the book to the publisher, I wasn't satisfied with it. And I think that's, uh, that's something we all knew that there was, we wanted to continue to work on the stat. We had ideas for what, we, what, what else we could do. We had new components we could add to the stat. We, um, we had ways that we had identified that we wanted to improve the stat. Um, and, you know, one thing I learned very early on was about picking your battles. This is something that is going to make a difference right now. And we need to have this conversation and we need to, to factor this into this next iteration of the statistic, this next release, versus this is something that can wait. This is something that doesn't make a big difference right now, or, or maybe it's not as particular, uh, particularly urgent, or we need to wait on a couple of other variables uh, before proceeding with that. But you know, that it's it's uh, kind of a battle. It's a it's a balance between both sides. Though. Two last questions for Ben Jedlovic, who's joining us from MLB today. Uh, this one from a Twitter follower, Joe Madison eighty nine says he'd like you to pick someone for whom StatCast has changed how you do that player. You know, I, I think one of the first ones that I think of is Kevin Pillar, how he was on, uh, probably in the early days of StatCast, he was on highlight reels every night um, and for his diving catches and everything uh, that he was doing defensively in center field in Toronto. Um, but when we looked at the numbers, uh, I was at BIS at the time, and but when we also saw the StatCast numbers, we could easily we start to, to dig deeper and realize that, yeah, his highlight reel catches looked great uh, going backwards on balls and everything, but the underlying numbers weren't, excuse me, weren't as strong necessarily to back it up entirely. Um, and when we dug deeper, we ended up finding that sometimes it was his positioning that was actually helping him, uh, or it was actually hurting him. It was making him, putting him out of place and making him cover more ground um, to, to try to make some of those diving catches. His routes weren't necessarily as great. So that was actually a, somewhat of a negative uh, example where his defense, you know, it kind of showed us how your eyes can be deceiving. The highlights are not necessarily the best indicators of, of who's doing a great job saving runs on the field. But the, the probably the broader point um, is, is that, you know, StatCast has really brought to light how uh, players and coaches can use data to make the product on the field that much better. You know, uh, 10 years ago, we had Brian Bannister and we had uh, Brian Bannister ed educating Zach Greinke on what pitch effects was and how he could use the numbers and, you know, what FIP was, what fielding independent pitching was and, and talking about, yeah, well, I try to keep my FIP low. But if you think about that, that means striking out guys, not walking guys and not allowing a lot of home runs, which is basically what every pitcher is trying to do anyways. But 
we've gone beyond that now. We've gotten guys like Trevor Bauer, who 10 years ago, he was drafted maybe 10 years ago, was uh, kind of discarded and, and you know, looked down upon because of his training me methods. And you know, now we see a lot of pitchers, a lot of pitching coaches being uh, hired for those specific types of training methods, you know, their, their data-oriented um, approach to, to coaching. They're statistical to, translators. Exactly, exactly. And so you see clubs that are uh, hiring people just to be those statistical translators. Now, you have Brian Bannister, for example, with the Red Sox being a great example of that. Um, but, you know, you see more and more clubs doing that kind of thing um, and, and putting it into action on the field, right? With, we talk about the Astros with Justin Verlander and, and Garrett Cole. Uh, you look at the launch angle revolution and the Justin Turner's and Chris Taylor's and Yonder Alonso's and everybody else that uh, that has benefited from that type of coaching and has kind of evolved or maybe completely overhauled their game um, to to become a better player. All right, last thing from the fun department. Tell us your favorite odd, unusual, quirky stat that you can remember from your days working at. Well, so the one that came to mind, you know, a few come to mind. I'm not, I'm not going to have a great answer for, for this necessarily. But one thing that popped up just the other day that's been on my mind is uh, we have these global universal identifiers, IDs, GUIDs, that, um, for the StatCast system that indicate, that give each StatCast play uh, a unique ID so that you don't, you know, theoretically you can identify each play individually. And the way, you know, from the... You know, as I understand the roots of, of this idea with, with GUIDs, GUIDs, is you pick a random number and you do enough random enough random digits. So basically, like the odds are basically impossible. They will ever have a repeat, of course. Um, well, so we, with the StatCast system, we have 32, I think a 32-digit GUID in the system for each play. Um, and we, weirdly enough, in five years of StatCast, just had one this month repeat. Uh, and if you sit down and you think about the odds of that uh, happening by chance, it's basically impossible. And that was the whole point of the of the GUID system in the first place, was so that this type of thing wouldn't happen. Uh, but it did. So that's the kind of thing that <laughs> bugs me as a statistician and bugs me as a not where I thought you'd be going with this. No, not at all. It, you know, probably boring for some audiences, but it is it is uh, for the statistics uh, part of me. It's still there. Uh, it's uh, it's. An interesting one, nonetheless. All right, last question. Uh, your future goals? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've been lucky to have a lot of good opportunities at MLB and at BIS before that, um, you know, for, for nine years. And uh, I really have enjoyed all of that. And I think um, I, going back to, you know, when I got hired by John DeWan, I worked with Bill James at BIS and all the, the great folks that we were affiliated with uh, and still are. Uh, now I'm over at MLB working with Tom Tango and, and many other equally talented but lesser known individuals, perhaps, uh, who are all very knowledgeable and passionate and, and, uh, about the, base, the game of baseball and, and uh, very capable developers and analysts, data scientists, whatnot. You know, and so that's, that's really um, you know, very exciting. We're working on a next generation StatCast system right now that uh, will be, I think, even more exciting when we have it ready for, for public consumption. Um, we start tracking with it. Uh, Probably next year. So uh, that's, you know, I'm just looking forward to that and, uh, you know, whatever lies ahead, lies ahead. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Hi, I'm Corey March of Info Solutions, and I'm here to tell you about SISBets.com. SISBets.com is an advanced prop betting information tool powered by Sports Info Solutions. Now you can leverage our proven projections model to find value against the odds. You're never more than a few clicks away from knowing 
which pitcher may surpass his strikeout prop, or whether your favorite running back projects to go over his rushing yards total. Just choose the type of bet, the player, and enter the money line to see the SIS Bets recommendation. That's SISBets.com. You're out. And we move on to our segment called Instant Replay. It's where we look at projects we're working on, articles we've written. We'll also share some leaderboards and interesting stats we've found. Andrew Kind from R&D joins me now. First up, this is something I was thinking about, I've been thinking about uh, since the season started. Who's the best defensive team in baseball? I think that's actually a pretty tough question right now because I don't necessarily see any team that is the clear-cut number one defensive team. Uh, so I'm probably going to go with a team that I think is just solid all the way around and doesn't have any big holes, and that's the Los Angeles Dodgers. And if you look at their DRS totals right now by position, they're actually negative at center field. That's They're only negative, but it's an interesting one because they had signed A.J. Pollock. Yeah, he's good. Right, for, for his center field defense. Um, but I think that might just be a small sample size thing. I think we'll have that uh, figured out. So with Pollock in center, Austin Barnes behind the plate, Corey Seager's back at shortstop. I think they're really strong up the middle. Uh, Cody Ballinger has been good in right. I think Jock Peterson is better in left than he's in center, so I think they're really good in the outfield. And then I think they're positioned really well. They've already saved a whole bunch of runs from infield shifts, so I think that they're a team to watch uh, defensively. You wouldn't necessarily know it from this weekend, but I, I would lean with the San Francisco Giants, who had a rough one against the Yankees. But they're off to a very good start defensively, and it's kind of like if you think about it, they should be really good defensively. They've got Posey behind the plate. He's a gold glove winner. Brandon Belt at first base. He's a gold glove uh, top candidate. Second base, Joe Paddock. He's a gold glove winner. Brandon Crawford's won gold gloves at short. They've got Longoria at third. All guys who are a little older than they were a couple of years ago who may have lost a step or two, but who have gotten off to good starts this year. In the outfield, Parada Parra, another gold glove guy. Kevin Pilar, we talked about earlier, they figured out how to position him. He's off to a good start with the Titans so far. And Steven Duggar in right field, the park is conducive to uh, what he does, which is chase down fly balls, and he's racked up the run save early this season. Then you can also talk about teams like the Cardinals, Harrison Bader, Yadier Molina, a combination of youth and veterans, the Astros, Alex Bregman's off to a really good defensive start by our numbers. Their catching's good. I got one for you, just simple answer. You're buying the Blue Jays, and they're AL league leading uh, defensive run save total? Not yet. Yeah, I, it's hard to, right? Yeah, I think I think it might just be an early thing. The Astros, like you said, they're also up near the top in the American League. But one thing with the Blue Jays I want to keep an eye on is going to be Vlad Jr. I think everyone's keeping an eye on that. But his minor league numbers for us weren't all that great. Uh, Friday night, just watching, he you know he made some nice plays. He has a good arm at third. I'll be curious to see what his range numbers look like, but um, I'm not quite buying the Blue Jays yet, but we'll keep an eye on it. He's a big guy. It'll be interesting to see how he can move around. All right, we go from best to worst. We did a story last uh, week in The Athletic about contending teams that have some quandaries defensively. I want to talk just briefly about the NL East and the AL East teams, starting in the NL East. NL East is a division of pretty lousy defensive teams other than the Atlanta Braves. Uh, the Mets have their issues, particularly at shortstop. We'll talk about the guy in a second. Ahmed Rosario is off to a slow start. Uh, Wilson Ramos was supposed to be this average to decent catcher. Uh, he's had trouble catching pitches, blocking pitches, throwing guys out. And one of their better hitters so far, first month of the season, is J.D. Davis. But if you play him at third, 
He's a major liability. He's already cost them seven runs with his defense. Phillies carry over from last season. Hoskins at first base struggling. Hernandez at second base. He hasn't been good. And Michael Franco, uh, probably the biggest uh, issue of them all. Bryce Harper's not off to a bad start, like a really bad start, but he's not off to a particularly good one either. And this is a team that doesn't do well for whatever reason in defensive shifts. I don't, I don't have a good uh, feel for why this year. We know in the past, we thought last year that it was probably because they just don't have good players, right? Right. Um, the Yankees and the Red Sox both have some worries, too. The Red Sox without Pedroia are first to play, and Gordon Nunez at second base. I think that's that's a little dicey. Uh, Rafael Devers at third, though he may get uh, supplanted by another rookie. Uh, the Yankees have all these injuries. You don't know how these guys are going to be. The things that would worry me about the Yankees most, uh, Gary Sanchez's ability to catch pitches. He's good at everything else. People need to understand that. He's actually a good defensive catcher because he has trouble blocking pitches. And uh, Luke Voigt at first base uh, is not necessarily the smoothest. All right, so Yankees and Red Sox, a little troubling. Mets and Phillies troubling. I didn't mention the Nats. They've got uh, their issues too. Uh, but NL Central, why don't, why don't you uh, give us your take on that? Sure. So you wrote uh, about the Pirates in, in your piece for the Athletic. And now they've lost a bunch. That's, that's right. <laughs> you, you had them as, as a potential contender. They've, they've lost eight in a row now. And they're kind of in a tough spot because they have a good pitching staff, but it just feels like their defense lets them down from time to time. Uh, they currently have the worst ratio of, of our good fielding plays to defensive misplays and errors, uh, worst mark in the National League. And they've, they've been battling with a lot of injuries to their position player group, so that's been tough. But in a situation like that where their offense isn't that great and they're really relying on run prevention, uh, they need that defense to be good, and it, it just hasn't really been there yet. Uh, elsewhere in the NL Central, you had, had mentioned in your article that the Cardinals have, have been good. I think that's something that uh, could keep them at, at the front of the pack with, with the Cubs and the Brewers. The Brewers are, obviously have uh, Lorenzo Cain, Robin Homers in, in center field, but uh, it'll be interesting to watch that play out, but I, I think that the, the Pirates' defense is something that's going to hold them back in the Central. Our leaderboard of the week is hard hit rate. We look at hard hit rate differently from some other places, and every source seems to have its own hard hit rate. Ours, we look at hard hit balls divided by at-bats plus sacrifice flies. We've done it a number of different ways. This is how we're going to do it today, uh, because we want to penalize the hitter for striking out in this case. In that case, you get a zero, because you didn't fall hard. Uh, you get a one if you did. So. We looked at the leaderboards, and we'll look at player leaderboards first. And the surprise name at the top, kind of cool. Christian Walker, the Arizona Diamondbacks, has a hard hit rate by our stat of 47%, 47% of his at-bats ending in a hard hit ball. Right behind him, you guys that you would expect to be behind him, based on their regular season numbers so far, Cody Dellinger and Christian Yelich. Then you get into some more uh, surprises. Tommy Finn, Yadier Molina, Yasmani Grandal, and Andleton Simmons. Last year's leader, Justin Turner, up at the top of the pack again. He's eighth, Shin Su Chu, and Carlos Santana. And with the way that we like to look at hard hit rate here, we look at it in conjunction with batting average. If a guy's batting average is low, but his hard hit rate is high, means there's usually an underlying factor behind that. Maybe defenses are shifting against him. Maybe he's hitting a lot of ground balls, because a ground ball can be a hard hit ball. Uh, there are a number of things that it kind of allows you to investigate that player further. Looking at the bottom of the list, um, some interesting names there, and we'll work from the bottom. Victor Robles, Malik Smith, Eloy Jimenez, your bottom three. 
Yeah, I thought Robles was a pretty interesting one just because his results haven't been all that bad yet. He's been about a league average hitter. He hit a home run yesterday. Um, but based on our expected batting statistics, which use things like the quality of, of contact and other factors, uh, he's outperforming his batting average by about 40 points. He's outperforming his OPS by about 120 points. Uh, so the results haven't exactly matched up with, with what we're seeing in this kind of backs that up, given that he's at the very bottom of the hard hit list, which, which I was kind of surprised to see. Eloy Mena is another one, another super prospect here that I think a lot of people, um, you know, have, have been keeping an eye on. He's, he just got hurt, but another interesting name to watch. And, the, you know, the other names at, at the bottom of that list are guys like D. Gordon and Jose Peraza and, and guys who you would probably expect not to have a lot of hard difficulties, but to see the Robleses and the, the Jimenez type, type prospects uh, having those numbers is certainly interesting. And Jimenez uh, struggling both getting the ball hard and on the defensive side. He's there at the bottom of the defensive run save leaderboard as well. Uh, team leaders, just run through those uh, quick. We'll give you the top five Cardinals, Angels, Dodgers, Rangers, and Diamondbacks. And we'll throw in the race too. They're 30%. Those are the six teams that are getting the ball hard most often. You mentioned the Pirates before. They are last, 22% hard hit rate. Then the White Sox, the Nats, the Phillies, and the Orioles. I know a lot of people are surprised by the Phillies, but they are down uh, near the bottom so far. All right, let's type a few loose ends. I think we talked about this previously on uh, one of the shows, but we've been watching the Orioles uh, closely and their defensive shifting. What have you seen on that? Yeah, so the Orioles lead the league by far right now in infield shifts, and they're on pace for almost 2,500 infield shifts on balls in play, which would easily be the new record that, that we've observed. Uh, the current record was held by the 2016 Astros, and they were north of 1,800, but if the Orioles get over 2,000, they would easily eclipse that. Um, as you've written, Mark, it's something that they're not only doing against left-handed batters, but they're doing it against righties, and they're not only doing it in the infield, but they're also doing it in the outfield. And we talked a little bit on the first episode right before the season started about how one of our colleagues, Brian Reef, presented at the Sabre Analytics Conference on the work that we've been doing regarding extreme outfield positioning. And although a lot of that is behind the curtain, we can share that the Orioles have been doing a lot of extreme outfield alignments so far. Uh, along with teams like the Rays and the Astros and teams that you might expect to be doing that sort of thing. Obviously, the, the Astros are notable there, given that some of the Orioles in the Brain Trust just came over from Houston. Uh, but I think it's just really interesting, because obviously the Orioles are rebuilding and not exactly contending right now, but they're experimenting. It's they're a baseball science lab. Exactly. They're seeing what works, what doesn't work. So even though the results aren't exactly there, they are at least trying some new things. All right, you mentioned home run robberies, too. Uh, Lorenzo Cain's got two this season. He had a very impressive one against the Mets over the weekend. So that's the question in our office. Are home run robberies up this year? So in terms of March and April, they're actually not. So this March and April, there have been 12 home run robberies, one about every 35 games. Last March and April, there were actually 17, which was one every 25 games. Uh, that pace from last year didn't sustain over the whole season. There were 65 total last year, which was a new record. I don't know if that's just noise or, or randomness or what have you, but uh, it, it was the new record in 2015. 
we saw 50 in 2016, we saw 48, and then that jumped to 60 in 2017, and like I said, 65 last year. So it's something that more or less like balls. Yeah, over time it's been trending up. That could be something that, given that you know ground ball rates are at an all-time low, there's more fly balls, perhaps there's more plays at the wall. Um, so it is it is trending up, but compared to last year, it hasn't exactly spiked uh, just yet. Listener mail, we got a few. A couple of people uh, wrote in uh, with questions. They put out a call for questions on Twitter. You can always tweet your questions to uh, sportsinfo underscore SIS if you like. Jesse Newell, who covers the Royals, asks that the Royals made it clear this offseason that their priority was speed and defense, yet the team is middle of the pack in defensive growth saved. Small sample, something to monitor. I think small sample. I think it's early yet. I think they have some good defenders like Billy Hamilton, Alex Gordon, guys who uh, potentially, you know, once once they get going, could could put up some totals pretty quickly. Uh, Jorge Soler has been their biggest problem, I think, in right field. Uh, he's already at, I believe, minus five or minus six, which is the worst among right fielders. Interestingly, they they have a guy in the system who could be a big benefit there in uh, Brett Phillips, who they acquired in the Mustakas trade last year. In very limited time in 2018, he had 12 defensive runs saved. The year before that, he had eight defensive runs saved. Again, very small samples. Uh, he didn't hit well last year in the majors. So he, you know, it's it's unclear if he's gonna be able to stick, but that's a guy who, in terms of the speed component and outfield range, I think a guy that could potentially help a lot, uh, at least on the line. They're also moving guys around a bit. With Merrifield playing second base, he's playing outfield as well. Uh, Merrifield, with a, uh, if he was second base, I think full time, he would put up good numbers. I don't think there's anything alarming in the defensive numbers uh, for the Royals just yet. And the best thing that they've seen so far is just the difference that Martin Maldonado makes. Uh, catching behind the plate. His numbers have been uh, really good so far. Sal Perez, uh, good at a number of things catching, but not necessarily, I guess what you would call just receiving uh, and handling pitches and getting strikes for his pitchers. Uh, JK Sports asks, was a Rosario always this bad defensively in the minors? Do the stats indicate that he gets better? I got this one. Uh, Men Rosario's minor league numbers showed us one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, that he hadn't been good on balls hit in the shortstop third base hall, whether he was at Binghamton or whether he was with the then AAA affiliate in Vegas. There was always this talk around Rosario that he was a really good defensive player, but you didn't see that necessarily from the people that go and scout, like the Keith Laws and some of the other uh, people that do that sort of thing. And I feel like Ahmed Rosario's reputation got enhanced a little bit. Uh, by uh, people who were over eager to proclaim him this uh, top of line amazing prospect. David Lipman asks on Facebook, what metrics would you use to identify the best umpire? Tell anyone. Uh, we actually do work uh, with umpire information here. I can reveal some of it. Uh, one thing that we look at is we look at different pockets of the strike zone, different areas outside the strike zone, and we look at how different an umpire is from his peers. Uh, because ideally you'd want to line up with with everybody else. Uh, and some umpires are good at that, and some umpires are, are not so good at that. And the guys that are the biggest outliers, I think a lot of people know that Bill Miller, uh, as a home plate umpire, tends to have a, a very big strike zone, uh, and he's one of the top ones there. Doug Eddings would be another. Lance Barrett is known for a very wide outside corner. And then you get someone like uh, Pat Popper is a good example of someone who has a smaller strike zone 
than most umpires from what we've seen. Kind of a, a, a more, a bigger challenge for a pitcher to try and uh, get called strikes on. Um, and uh, you gotta know your umpires if you're a pitcher. Uh, it's an important uh, part of the job. You gotta know if you're a pitcher or you're a catcher. I think the next thing we wanna work on is something with like consistency to figure out which umpires are consistent and which umpires are inconsistent. Ridiculous numbers of the day. Andrew, you're up first. Sure, so last episode I went with a Cody Bellinger stat and I'm going to stick with Cody Bellinger because his start to the season has been absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I was looking at some hitter performances against certain pitch types and found that Bellinger is 10 for 16 with five extra base hits against changeups this year. Uh, that's a 625 batting average and his 1872 OPS against changeups is the best for any hitter against a specific pitch type so far. And it's interesting because the changeup was actually his worst pitch type last year. He only had 247. And in 2018, he had two doubles and two homers against changeups. This year, or he has three doubles and two homers. So the change is not throw able, right. The change has not been able to neutralize him uh, in, in 2019, and he's off to a simply ridiculous start. I like your use of the word ridiculous. Thank you. All right. So my dad sent me an email last late last night asking me if I was familiar with a season in which Stan Musial had more triples than strikeouts. I wasn't. I'm just dropping that in here. I know we like to do. Um, we, we don't do a lot of history stuff here. I'm just dropping that in as a bonus ridiculous stat. All right. So you know, on fan graphs, you can see things like swing percentage, in zone percentage. That stuff comes from us. But here we have access to dig a little deeper on it, which is kind of cool. And I was looking at curveballs and who throws their curveball in and out of the strike zone the most and the least. I want to start, I want to work with the list of the guys that do it the least. And I was looking at Michael Waka this season. Michael Waka has thrown 50 curveballs this season. Only six have been in the strike zone. So he's really one of those guys who it has to look like a strike because if it doesn't, it's just going to get taken. Here's a hint, people. When he's pitching, don't swing. And hitters haven't thus far. All right, let's apply it more to a pitcher his partner who gets swings. Clayton Kershaw has thrown 51 curveballs this season. Only 13 have been in the strike zone, and it's working. Hitters have made 13 outs. They have six strikeouts against him. You watch Clayton Kershaw's curveball, it's amazing. Uh, when he's on, it's it's arguably his best pitch. There have been years where his slider's his best pitch. His curveball can go snap and look like it's going to be at the knees, and then it just drops right down. And that wraps up the third episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. For our guest, Ben Gentlebeck, and my colleague, Andrew Kine, this is Mark Simon. See you in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.